it's Supreme Court season. It happens every June. (laughs) We all hover around our computers and uh, in absolute terror, wait to see what fresh hell SCOTUS brings us. Mark Joseph Stern covers the Supreme Court for Slate. And in June, the justices come up against a big deadline, their own vacations. Before they go, they like to leave the American public with a little parting gift, opinions. Always the biggest ones, right? And so we know they're coming, but we don't know exactly on which day. Yeah, I picture, you know, around Memorial Day, everyone else starts barbecuing and going to the pool and you start sitting by your computer drinking Soylent and coffee. (laughs) Um, Yes, that is a fairly accurate picture of me. Replace the Soylent with Xanax for the really big decisions. I called up Mark because this year's big rulings are just beginning to trickle out. Some of them seem pretty technical wonky even. But Mark says if you read these decisions, they have a way of upending what you think you might know about the Supremes. A lot of SCOTUS watchers, myself included, quite frequently fall prey to the Democrat and Republican lens of of looking at the court. But when you're analyzing kind of interesting or quirky cases like these, that all falls away and you get to spend more time digging into the ideology that is genuinely separated from partisan politics. It really screws up your bingo square, I think, uh, which is a lot of fun for me because it's always a delight to try to assess, like, why in the world Gorsuch and Ginsburg are, are on the same page here, why Thomas voted with the liberals, you know, all of that stuff. That is, uh, that is my jam, pretty much. Today on the show, surprises at the Supreme Court. We're going to try to figure out why most of the progressive wing decided it was just fine for a guy to be charged twice for the same crime, and why two conservative justices might have helped flip a statehouse blue. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. 
This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. And it would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. Well, let's talk a little bit about the two cases that you flagged as the big ones today. This first case is all about double jeopardy, the ability of the state and the feds to try the same person for the same crime but have each of them do it. So the person's being charged twice, essentially. Tell me about this case. Yeah, so I think that if you were just a regular person off the street and I threw the Fifth Amendment in your face and said, read this, what does it mean? You would not think that the state and federal prosecutors could charge one person for the exact same crime. Because that's like the principle of double jeopardy, right? So if you're charged for doing something bad and you are tried and acquitted, the prosecutors who charged you can't come back and try you again, right? Uh, If you are tried and you're found guilty and you're put in prison, you can't walk out of prison and run into the prosecutors and be told, hey, we're going through all this again because we want a second prison sentence for you. The idea is prosecutors get one bite at the apple, and that's it. And that's because the framers had some experience when they were writing the Constitution. They'd had some real experience with with arbitrary uh, prosecutions, double prosecutions, English cases in which prosecutors said, well, we didn't get what we wanted, so we're going to try again. Um, That was anathema to them. It was something they found to be just fundamentally violative of individual liberty. Uh, So they wrote it right into the Constitution, right into the Fifth Amendment, that it wasn't going to happen in America. But under this exception called the separate sovereigns exception, the state and the the feds get to both come at you and charge you for the exact same crime, the exact same misconduct in in different courts. So this case, Gamble versus the United States, tell me a little bit about what happened here. Yeah, so this is a case about a guy who got charged in Alabama court under Alabama law for having a gun when he wasn't allowed to, got sentenced to prison, uh, and then the feds came in and said, hey, we're going to charge you again for the exact same crime, but this time in federal court under federal law. They did it. And they got an extra nearly three years added on to his prison sentence. And he protested and said, hey, this violates my right against double jeopardy. And the case wound up at SCOTUS. Yeah, I mean, what stood out to me looking at this is this is a case where it just seems really obvious how this can go wrong. 
<laughs> and does so often, right? I, I mean, it, it, he was just a guy who had a gun when he wasn't supposed to, and he was unlucky enough to fall into this program that the federal justice department runs that attempts to identify defendants who basically in the eyes of the feds didn't get put away for long enough. And they get to come in and stack new charges and keep them in prison for longer. What's interesting to me is when you were researching this case, you really delved into where this double jeopardy loophole came from. And you found that it came from a pretty nasty place. Oh, gosh, yes. The first really clear ruling on this loophole was a a SCOTUS decision that was actually developed to punish people who were acquitted under state law for protecting fugitive slaves. So the idea was, okay, well, these abolition states uh, would acquit people who were protecting fugitive slaves because the states didn't like slavery. They thought it was good. The juries thought it was good to, to harbor fugitive slaves. And so then the feds would come in and say, oh, but we're punishing you for the same crime because we're the feds. And we get to do that. Uh, It does actually all largely spring from there. And I think it's worth noting, as both Justices Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Neil Gorsuch said in their dissents today, um, that, that before then, if you look at all of the literature, all of the sources the founding fathers were reading, Blackstone and Roman law, uh, the Magna Carta, you know, all this stuff, there is a very clear bar on double jeopardy. And there is no exception for separate sovereigns. This idea does not emerge from any of the summer reading that James Madison and Thomas Jefferson were doing at the Constitutional Convention. <laughs> You said part of the problem, because you were at oral arguments, was that the lawyer who was representing the defendant here, he just didn't do a very good job. No. And, and, you know, sometimes I feel bad saying that because I've never argued before the justices and I'm sure it's really, really hard and stressful. But he was overstating his case at oral arguments. He was trying to say there was this mountain of evidence against the double jeopardy loophole. And the truth is that there isn't because until very recently, there weren't many opportunities for this loophole to get exploited because it's easy to forget now, but for a very long time in our history, the federal criminal code was very small, right? Like most crimes that you could commit were not federal crimes at all. They were state crimes. You could be prosecuted under state law. The feds had nothing to do with it. Owning a gun illegally, not a federal crime. Doing drugs, not a federal crime. All this stuff that people are in prison for today, not a federal crime for much of our history. Only in the last century was was the federal criminal code expanded beyond what anybody thought it might be in the 1780s and 90s. It's difficult to craft an argument that's sort of surgically precise, uh, debunking the loophole when it wasn't used for so long. Hmm. And the justice is basically argued, if you're going to make us trample precedent, you have to do better. Yeah, yeah. Give us a good reason. You know, stare decisis, that means just respecting precedent. It's supposed to be a thing. So the judicial lineup today, the people ruling for and against this case, you said it was kind of interesting because you had Ginsburg and Gorsuch teaming up. What was happening there? 
So you have Ginsburg and Gorsuch dissenting. They wrote separate dissents, but they say basically the same thing. Uh, although Ginsburg says in 12 pages what it takes Gorsuch 25 pages to say, uh, which is just classic for both of them. Uh, and then the other seven justices vote to keep the double jeopardy loophole. This is a case of, of Ginsburg and Gorsuch being genuine libertarians when it comes to individual rights. And their thesis is... Look, yeah, you can call the feds the sovereign, you can call the states the sovereign, you know, you can do this wordplay. But the truth is that the guys who wrote the Constitution thought that the people were sovereign. All legitimate sovereignty springs from the people. And so this idea of there being separate sovereigns who are separately offended by the same crime, it just doesn't make any sense because all of the sovereignty comes from the people as a whole, and however they're divided up, that's still where the sovereignty lies. So I know that sounds a little technical, but I think it makes a pretty powerful point in the end, and it's not one that the majority effectively rebukes. The majority does fall back on this respect for precedent and, and, and tries to sort of frame themselves as minimalists, as exercising restraint. Meanwhile, Ginsburg and Gorsuch are going all out for individual liberties. They're saying, look, this rule is wrong. It has always been wrong. And we should honor the Constitution by overturning it. Okay, let's talk about this second case that came out today, the gerrymandering case. The Supreme Court has really been talking a lot about gerrymandering, especially over the last year, but for a while now. Um, and there's a reason. There's a reason why. Can I tell you? <laughs> yes, it's trivia, please. but it's worth noting. Go. Uh, it, it, it's because of this quirk in federal law. Um, you know, when the Supreme Court decides to take most cases, it's at their discretion, right? They, they turn away the vast majority of cases. They get to choose which ones they want. Uh, but cases that challenge gerrymanders have to go to the Supreme Court, no matter how they turn out in the lower court. And the Supreme Court has to take them. Well, why can't they duck them? Because... Congress gets to choose which cases SCOTUS has to decide. Um, this is a, a little used power these days um, because a long time ago, SCOTUS pleaded with Congress to let it have control over its own docket. And Congress basically gave in and said, sure. But this one class of cases, challenges to gerrymandering, that stayed in the mandatory jurisdiction bucket. That's what it's called. Uh, lame name for a pretty interesting interesting phenomenon. Hmm. Well, Virginia has been fighting over their gerrymandering for a long time. So what happened in this case? So Virginia, oh God, Virginia, Virginia, North Carolina, man, I just, I never want to hear another gerrymandering case about them. I, except I'm going to spend the rest of my lives hearing about it uh, for various reasons. But Virginia drew a racial gerrymander following the 2010 census. The, the House and the Senate got together and drew a really nasty racial gerrymander. And the idea is you um, put all of the black voters in specific areas, and so then you create these very Republican districts and very Democratic districts. It, it's called packing and cracking. You pack all the black voters into as few districts as possible, and you say, look, we're giving them what they want. We're giving them political power. And then you distribute the remaining black voters in these really, really white districts, and in places where race corresponds to partisanship, which is literally everywhere, what you've done is entrenched a permanent Republican majority. So you'll have a few deep blue districts of, of majority black voters and most everywhere else, you'll have a bunch of lily white Republican districts. 
here's what I think is interesting about this case. So this is the Virginia House of Delegates that's brought it. And and they're very close. They have a very slim majority, the Republicans. And it used to be seen as an advantage to have a district that was packed with black voters. It was a way to ensure more black representation. So what happened to sort of change how progressives especially felt about this? Right. For a while, there was this alliance between black representatives who were elected from these districts and white Republicans. Of course, essentially all of the black representatives from these districts were Democrats. So it was a cross ideological alliance that was driven by self-interest on both sides. Black representatives who were Democrats wanted to keep their seats and that meant keeping their districts. And that meant ensuring that Republicans maintained control, didn't draw more competitive maps, kept these majority black districts packed up tight. Uh, And that led to a persistent racial gerrymander across a ton of the South, really up to this day. Hmm. But a few years back, the Supreme Court found racial gerrymandering was unconstitutional. Yeah. And more importantly, it it created a really firm standard about when racial gerrymandering crosses the line. And this was a decision uh, that was decided by the four liberal justices and Clarence Thomas, who is, I will say, the most consistent vote on racial gerrymandering on this court. Because in the old days, Thomas was complaining about these majority black districts the Democrats liked. He would say, you know, no matter what, you can't draw districts on the basis of race, it's just illegal. And then when Democrats kind of realized they were getting screwed about all this and started challenging them, Thomas stuck to his guns and said, yeah, these Democrats are absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the court has said in, in, in very clear terms, If you draw districts on the basis of race, if you are sorting voters racially, even if you claim you're trying to promote the Voting Rights Act, that is unconstitutional and those districts are going to get struck down. It is remarkably consistent. It's like he's against affirmative action and he's against affirmative action for Congress, too. Yep. (laughs) That's a great way of putting it. Uh, And I think he would appreciate it because it's it's absolutely correct. And as the other justices have kind of switched sides on the issue, he has stayed uh, steadfastly right there in the middle, sticking to his guns. Hmm. So Virginia's maps were redrawn earlier this year, and those maps were approved by a judge. But this case that was in front of the Supreme Court was the House of Delegates appealing in this sort of last ditch effort to get these maps thrown out. Right. Right. So, Mark, this case is already sort of confusing because it's a gerrymandering case, which means you have old maps and new maps and a special master who is brought in to redraw the maps. But then you also have this sort of interesting idea of who's actually coming into court to defend the maps. Right. And here, the entire case revolves around that because these maps uh, are being defended by the House of Delegates. The House of Delegates is saying in court, uh, this is our racial gerrymander and we want to keep it that way. And uh, that's pretty unusual. You, you typically have a state attorney general representing the state's interests. Here instead, you have the House saying, we want to keep our racial gerrymander. So the entire case at the Supreme Court actually revolves around whether the House of Delegates even has standing to defend these maps uh, or if it doesn't have a real injury and therefore can't even appear in court to defend them. So the House stepped into this litigation and said, look, ignore the attorney general. He doesn't know what he's talking about. We're the ones who are getting injured by these new maps, and we're going to defend our racial gerrymander at the Supreme Court. Hmm. 
how the Supreme Court feel about that. The Supreme Court said, nope, you can't do that uh, by a five to four vote with a very strange lineup. This uh, case was decided um, by Justice Ginsburg in the majority, and she was joined by Kagan, Sotomayor, Thomas and Gorsuch. So today was a good day for anyone who uh, who loves the idea of an RBG Gorsuch alliance. <laughs> um, and, and what what the majority basically said was, look, the maps here that have been struck down, they were drawn and passed into law by the House and the Senate together. But the Senate isn't suing here. The entire Virginia legislature isn't suing here. It's only the House that's suing. And so the majority said, you aren't injured by this. You don't have standing to defend your old maps. If the Senate had joined you, it'd be a different story. But they aren't here. So you don't have standing. And we're tossing this whole thing out of court. Yeah. And I mean, I think it says some interesting things about what's about to happen in Virginia. I mean, you're looking at a state legislature that has been going blue, even with these gerrymandered maps in place. Now they've been redesigned. They're in the middle of going back into session to consider gun control with the old representatives. They've been talking about stuff like the Equal Rights Amendment. It just makes you wonder where Virginia is going to be in a year. Almost certainly a fully blue state, I think. 2017, elections held under the bad old maps. Democrats nearly took the House. This coming November, 2019, there's going to be more elections. Uh, I think Democrats are going to take the House and probably take the Senate. Uh, And it's going to be partly due to these new maps because there are no longer these. They were described often as sinkholes, um, sinkholes of black voters where they were all just thrown in together into districts to, to keep them from influencing more of the map. They're gone. And the House is drawn much more fairly. So I think this this bodes quite well for a big blue wave in November that sweeps across the Virginia legislature and brings Democrats into power. Hmm. You know, looking at the cases we talked about today, I was struck by the fact that, you know, Gorsuch is making some interesting moves here. I, I just wonder what these rulings sort of say to you about the politics of the Supreme Court and who's listening to whom. They say that even when the justices scream at each other over really politically charged cases, like the death penalty cases from earlier this year, uh, they are still willing to find allies uh, on the other side. They are still willing to sort of team together with unusual bedfellows to further their, their goals. And that their views really are not always latched to partisan politics. That sometimes they really do have uh, legal ideas that are independent from the political scene. And that people like Gorsuch and Ginsburg, uh, and sometimes Gorsuch and Sotomayor, uh, are willing to get together and do what they can to further those ideas, even if they fall outside the familiar partisan matrix. As a Supreme Court reporter and as a lawyer, do you find that reassuring? Very comforting. Every lawyer loves to see that, I think. Uh, Even the most hardened and cynical legal realist, I think, uh, gets a smile when he or she sees an unusual alliance at the court because it shows that it's not just Republicans and Democrats fighting with each other, that maybe there really is something different from politics going on at the Supreme Court, something we call law. And maybe it's not just a super legislature, but actually nine judges who are trying to interpret the Constitution as best they can. 
All right, Mark Joseph Stern, thank you so much for joining me. Always a pleasure. Thanks. Mark Joseph Stern covers the Supreme Court for Slate. That's the show. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris, and produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Ethan Brooks. If you're still listening up until the end like this, like you are right now, do us a favor. Go on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Make sure you're subscribed. And if you can, leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Or just go follow me on Twitter. I'm at Mary's Desk. All right. Talk to you tomorrow. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, Cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails, there ain't no going back.